let's talk about some of my autistic traits. This is actually part three of this little series where I talk about some of my autistic traits. If you haven't yet, please go watch part one and part two. But I imagine that this is one of my most popular videos on my channel because there's a lot of people out there who are just coming across autism and are suspecting that they may have autism themselves or was just recently diagnosed with autism. I myself was diagnosed with autism at the age of 26, so that is pretty late in my life I would consider because I was diagnosed long after I had gone through all types of schooling, college, high school, primary school, all that stuff. With neurodivergency in general, I also have ADHD and OCD. Being diagnosed with autism as an adult is a very unique experience because you've lived your whole life thinking you know yourself in very specific ways. So when you get diagnosed with these life-changing diagnoses, I would consider ADHD and especially autism life-changing because it is a developmental neurological disorder. Disorder, And so learning about yourself with that lens is a very different experience that we don't really see being talked about much because it doesn't really happen much as of now at least but I do think we're kind of growing into a day and age where our perception of autism is for sure changing and I myself think that I haven't personally seen people like me talk about their journey with being diagnosed with autism or talking about their autism in these specific ways my idea of autism was so stereotyped based off of my knowledge of it and based off of how autism was represented in media even educators idea and medical professionals idea of autism was very stereotyped so this is why videos like this is so important because I could talk about these specific autistic traits that are not really represented in society and not really listed directly in the DSM-5 but they are still valid and they are still part of my autism and they are still my autistic traits with that being said of course these traits are not gendered personality traits are not a gendered thing I just put female autistic traits in the title for the sake of the algorithm and to help those out there to find my channel in this video more easily. Anyone could have these traits, anyone could relate to me regardless of what your gender is. But let's get a move on to my first trait. So the first trait I have on my list is exaggerated facial expressions. This, like many other traits, I had never really thought about. I just would do things, right? You don't ever have enough self-awareness to think, why do I do certain things? Or what is certain actions of mine associated to? And so these were things that I would just do, but after getting diagnosed and reflecting on certain personality traits in connection to autism made me realize that things like exaggerated facial expression in photographs was a part of my autism and a part of my social deficit. I think there's a lot of different aspects of facial expressions in autism. I think a lot of the times the stereotype is that autistic people have a very flat affect and very monotone demeanor. But on the other end of the spectrum, I think a part of autism is having these very exaggerated facial expressions, body gestures, and sometimes in situations where it doesn't necessarily seem fit or in situations where the exaggeration is a little bit too much. And so I noticed that for me, 
The first time I began to utilize masking and the first time I began to really mask in my life was around high school. And a part of my mask was in situations where we would take photos, I found myself getting so socially anxious. Like I didn't know how to just be me because essentially I was never able to just be me. Every time I was just me, it was always pointed out to me or in front of others in a negative light. For example, having flat affect Effect. People would always think that there was something wrong with me. People would always think that I was not having fun. I was grumpy. I was intimidating. I was scary. And so I learned around high school that I had to do these exaggerated smiles and body gestures and facial expressions in order to seem more likable, in order to seem less intimidating, and in order to feel like I am fitting in more, which is ironic because I ended up being the only one in these pictures that had these exaggerated facial expressions. So I guess that's a part of the autism as well is I at the time thought I was fitting in and I was doing what I needed to do to fit in. But if you were to look at the pictures, you would probably think to yourself, why is everyone looking normal and smiling normally and Irene is just doing these super exaggerated facial expressions. And I noticed that it's not just me. I feel like there's other autistic individuals that I know in my personal life that do this same exact thing where they have these super exaggerated facial expressions in photographs and everyone else is just smiling normally, right? This is definitely an autistic trait that we overlook and it isn't really something that is directly listed in the DSM-5. It makes a lot of sense because on one hand, I did these exaggerated facial expressions because I had really horrible social anxiety where I constantly didn't know what I was supposed to do and I was constantly trying to interpret what I'm supposed to do in certain situations. I think that's the little difference between normal social anxiety and social anxiety that is in association with the autism is it's normal to feel nervous here and there in different social situations, but I know for me, I am socially anxious in every social situation. No matter how well I know someone, no matter how comfortable I am with someone, I notice that the social anxiety is always there because ultimately I am constantly trying to interpret social situations, cues, what is appropriate, what is not appropriate constantly. And that makes me very, very anxious. And I'm never really knowing what is technically appropriate. Like I could do all the mental work to try to do something that's appropriate, but I still always feel like it might be wrong and I might be interpreting things wrong. I still have that to this day. Luckily enough, I have people in my life that will let me know, Irene, you're doing fine. It's hard for me to know when I'm doing something right because I'm constantly so on edge as to try to get it right, you know? Another aspect of my autism is my rapid eye movements or my irregular eye movements. This isn't something I really noticed about myself either until after the diagnosis. The first time this came to my attention was before going in for the assessment, asked my psychologist if he would be able to do the assessment over a virtual meeting because he lives hours and hours away from me. And so if I didn't have to travel into another city, I would prefer not to. And he explained to me that it was very necessary for me to come in for the assessment because part of the things that he was looking for is what my body movements were like and also as well what my eye movements were like and I thought that that was really interesting. I genuinely didn't know that that was something that psychologists were looking for when they 
they are assessing someone for autism. After my assessment was over, he explained to me that one of the biggest things that he noticed about me was my eye movements and let me get into his observations. So it is part of autism to have an inaccurate or irregular saccade. Saccades are a rapid movement of the eye between fixation points. The stereotype of autism and eye movement is that autistic individuals have a hard time with eye contact and autistic individuals can't make eye contact. And that is such a stereotype that is harmful because a lot of the times autistic individuals are misdiagnosed or not diagnosed with autism because medical professionals will say, oh, you can make eye contact with me just fine. You know, things like that. There's so much more to eye contact and eye movement and autism than what we may think it is. I feel like eye movement and eye contact is not necessarily a social thing as much as it is a processing thing. For example, I can make eye contact with people just fine, but he did notice that in certain conversations where what he was saying was more complex, I wouldn't be able to maintain eye contact with him. And I would have these very rapid saccades where my eyes would go back and forth, almost like I was reading a book really fast. But of course I was just kind of staring off into space and I wasn't really even looking at anything in particular. And I didn't know that I did this, right? But he said that that was a very important thing that he noticed about my eye movement, that whenever I was really processing something, whether whether that's something he was saying, or I was in deep thought in general, I would constantly have these rapid eye movements back and forth. When I would bring this up later on to people in my personal life, they actually told me that they noticed that about me as well, that whenever they're talking to me, they noticed that I would have a tendency to look off and constantly just be moving my eyes really fast from no specific points of fixation, but just kind of moving my eyes around. I can make really good eye contact on a very surface level basic type of conversation and in a way where it's very easy for me to understand the other person, but anytime the conversation is a little bit more complicated or technical, and I need to process things a little bit more or I need to visualize things in my mind to go along with what they're saying, I have to look away and do these rapid saccades and eye movements in order to have that processing. And so that is why I don't think the inability to make eye contact is as simple as you have autism and you have that social deficit. I think some people may think that autistic people can't make eye contact because they are socially nervous or something or incapable of doing it because they don't know it's normal and they don't know they have to do that. I don't think it's that dumbed down. I think it's just a matter of processing. Sometimes people can process what you say a lot clearer when they are looking at different things or able to move their eyes in different types of ways. And an aspect of that as well could be just as simple as anxiety. Of course, when you're more anxious, it's harder for you to process things, period, with or without autism. So if you do have autism and you're just more anxious, of course, you're going to want to look away and give your eyes the freedom to just move around and look in all different directions in order to give the other person more of your attention and be able to process what they say a little bit more coherently. 
Another aspect of my autism is I have a hard time following verbal stories or verbal instructions. What this means is, I'll provide a few examples because I do know that sometimes it's hard for us to understand things unless we get direct, clear examples. But when people are giving me directions to get to a certain destination and they're just telling me these directions, I have such a hard time following those verbal directions because ultimately I have a hard time processing names and names could be for people and they could also be for streets cities things like that and i think this is a part of what contributes to the social deficit i have a hard time understanding and processing names to me when i hear a name i don't associate anything to it and nothing makes me remember the name i don't know how to explain it to me Saying a name is almost as insignificant as just saying a word, if that makes sense. And so when someone is saying, oh, turn right on Cherry Street and make a left down Smith Street, I literally like, I, I cannot even comprehend what that even means. All I hear is right, left, straight, right, U-turn, things like that. I've always had an easier time understanding and memorizing visual things. So if someone were to instead say, drive down the road with trees on both ends of the street, and when you get to the dead end at the end of the street and you see a trash can, that's when you make the U-turn. And once you make the U-turn, you will see a pink house on the right side of the street. That's how you know you're going the right direction. If people gave me visual cues, it's a lot easier for me to visualize it in my mind, so therefore a lot easier for me to process the actual information they're giving me, so therefore it's a lot easier for me to memorize. But when people are just saying verbal instructions, I'm basically not really processing any of it because I'm not able to process the names, if that makes sense. And this also applies to simple things like leisurely activities, social interactions, for example. If someone close to me is talking about people in their lives like oh Michelle is this and then Katie did that even though I've known this person for years unless I see what this person actually looks like I will not know who they're talking about sometimes I won't even know who they're referring to if they were to just refer to them by their name even after seeing their face I will literally just say who is this person again I don't know who you're talking about can you show me a picture this applies to even tv shows when I'm watching house of dragon for example I literally don't know what's going on ever in the show especially the first time watching it anytime they're having any sort of dialogue that has someone's name inside the dialogue I don't know who they're talking about so they're Therefore, I cannot follow the dialogue whatsoever. And so in order for me to understand what's going on in the show, I have to go and watch YouTubers, for example, who kind of break down the synopsis of the episode in correlation with the pictures of the faces that's in association with the name. And after I can really comprehend, oh, so that's what happened. I have to go back and watch the episode again a couple times to really solidify what went on. And I feel like this is a big part of why the social deficit happens. It's not as simple as autism equals social deficit, right? There's reasonings behind why you have a social deficit. If you can imagine, if I don't really understand 
names or process names, it's hard for me to follow social interactions. It's hard for me to follow conversations. It's hard for me to make connections to other people when they're talking about things that involves names. So I just finished the video where I compare the similarities and differences between OCD and autism. In that video, I state that a lot of people who are diagnosed with OCD have undiagnosed autism, and a lot of people who have autism are a lot more likely to have OCD. And I also go into the differences between regular OCD on its own and also OCD in association with autism. The reason why I bring that up is because my psychologist who diagnosed me with the autism explained to me that I do have OCD tendencies that is in association to my autism in specific. This is because I have a lot of very, very specific preferences and insistence on sameness in correlation to those preferences. I think that's just one little thing that people misunderstand about autism as well is autistic people don't want you to change things or move things. They have to do things the same way every time. It's not that easy. A lot of the times autistic people do try different things. They do venture out, but sometimes they just simply come to realize that the things that they give a try isn't that great in comparison to something they did before. This applies to a lot of things in my life, but especially it applies to food. So I find that a lot of people who have autism or suspect they have autism may come to realize that they have disordered eating. I say that because sometimes when you have very specific sensory sensitivities or very significant food preferences, it might get in the way of you being able to eat properly and it might get in the way of you getting your nutrition, for example. And so if that affects your health, I would consider that in a sense disordered eating, right? When I'm eating something, it has to be eaten in perfect portions. So what that means is whatever I eat, every bite has to include everything on the bite. So if I'm eating a chipotle bowl, for example, I have to mix the bowl up so that the whole bowl is homogenous so that every single bite includes everything within the bowl in every single bite. This also applies to if I was eating burgers, fries, and a Coke, for example. I have to take a bite of my burger and while the bite is still in my mouth, I have to eat two or three fries and then chew my food, swallow it, and then do that with every bite. This even goes to the point where, let's say I'm getting to the end of my meal, if the portions aren't right, so let's say I run out of fries and I still have half my burger left, I have to find a way to get more fries in order to be able to eat the fries with the burger because I cannot just eat the burger by itself. I, I literally just can't do it. Another OCD tendency of mine, it was actually something my past partners pointed out to me and it is that I always leave one fourth of my food left over. And this happens without a doubt every single time I eat. Every. And when I say every single time I eat, you guys, I genuinely mean it. The first time this was pointed out to me was my high school boyfriend. He was like, I always can count on eating some of your food. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, oh, because you leave a fourth of your food every time and I get to eat it. 
and I didn't really think anything of it at the time until years later at the age of like 24 when I was living with my ex-partner and he made fun of me one time because I was eating something and I had a fourth left and it was literally like this much food left. Like you could probably just eat it in three bites. I packaged it up and put it in the fridge. I remember later that day he was like, what is this? He took out like a piece of burger that would have taken like three bites to finish. And he was like, did you really just put a bite of burger in the fridge? And I was like, yeah. And then he just said, why do you do that? You always leave a fourth of your food left. Why can't you just eat the rest of it or save half of your food so that it could be more of a meal for later? That was the first time since my high school boyfriend where that was pointed out to me again. Of course, this was after I was diagnosed with the autism and it made me realize, holy crap, this is not just something that happens every now and then. It's like something that consistently happens every single time I eat. There's probably more to this than I may have thought that there were. To me, it's as simple as I just get full and I stop eating and I put my leftovers away. But now that I think about it, it must be deeper than that because I always get full when there's a fourth of my food left. So I'm starting to wonder, in my mind, for whatever reason, am I physically just used to feeling full when I visually get the cue that there's a fourth of the food left? And that's just like a habit I developed and maintain even without having to put effort into it. It's just super interesting. And in general, if I'm not able to eat in the way that I want to, I almost don't want to eat at all. And this is where I think it could get in the way of your health. And this is something I've seen Colleen Ballinger talk about where she says if she can't eat what she wants to eat, she just won't eat. And I definitely relate to this. I think a part of having such strong preferences as an autistic person is when you can't have your preferences met and your needs met, you just avoid it altogether. I have to be able to sit down, eat something I wanna eat and watch a video along with it. This is to the extent where I notice that when I'm out eating with people, I'm not able to eat as much because I'm not really enjoying myself as much and I'm not enjoying the food as much. It's almost like the flavor isn't the same it doesn't taste as good as it would taste when I'm at home by myself watching my comfort show. Sometimes I could go a whole day without eating because I'm just waiting to go home and be able to finally eat in the comfort of my own home and just be able to fully relax and enjoy myself. Ironically, the more stressed I am, the less I eat because the more stressed I am, the more I want to rely on a comfort. And what a comfort is to me is the routine of eating and enjoying the meal at home the way that I want to enjoy it rather than just forcing myself to eat in a situation where I can't even enjoy the food and it makes me anxious, you know? And this recently happened when I was flying from Orlando back to California. I literally had a nightmare flight where I had one two hour flight, a six hour layover, and then a five hour flight all in one day. And because I was so uncomfortable that whole day of flying, I just ended up not eating anything because the airport was so busy and loud and there wasn't any food that I liked and so I ended up just not eating the whole day until I got home and it was like 10 p.m. but to me I was able to actually relax when I got home and enjoy my food I was so mentally comforted but it got to a point where I was physically sick because I wasn't able to eat all day and so I had to deal with a migraine I felt nauseous I felt weak this happens so much you know to me 
I get to a point where I'm just physically sick and shaking because I'm so hungry. But at the same time, I can't fathom like bringing myself to eat in a stressful situation. And I don't think it's worth it, you know? And on the other end of the spectrum, when I'm really, really enjoying my food and myself and how I'm eating, I notice that it's a full body stim for me. Like I will literally find myself tapping my hands on the table. I could sometimes like move my head, rock my body. And if I'm really enjoying myself, I'll like tap my feet, rock my body, tap my hands. And it's just such an enjoyable experience that I can't hold back on. And I feel like that is definitely a part of the autism as well is that when you really enjoy something and you love it, you enjoy it more than the average person. And so that's something I think is important to bring up as well, like the good experiences of autism. If you guys enjoyed today's video, stick around and watch the video I made about OCD and autism. Other than that, I will see you guys on next week's video. Bye guys.